Happens a lot. Yeah. He won't be clapping for long. Uh, but it's kind to do it now. It really is. Really, really is. Yeah. Glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. Am I too bouncy? Does that sound too... No? Okay. What we're going to do this morning is take a look at uh, a passage that's probably familiar to, to some of you. It's the anointing of David to become king of Israel. And as you look at this passage, perhaps the question that must come to your mind, my mind is, upon what basis does the Lord love you? Upon what basis is the Lord happy with you and pleased with you? When you fail, when you're struggling, when you're full of sin and doubt and plagued with discouragement, what is it that the Lord extends to you that keeps you going in this life, this life that's often full of suffering and tears and disappointment? Think about those questions. Let me read the text to you. It's found in your bulletin on page 4. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The word of the Lord. So this is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's for his glory. It's for our good. Really is a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, you may not know this, but Redeemer is known throughout the PCA as being the church with the most powerful air conditioner in our <laughs> in our denomination. It's it's known far and wide for that. I'm glad to be back in the cyclone. I really am. Uh, if you drive east from San Francisco to Sacramento, you're driving on I-70. And I-70 is often this raised bypass. And it's raised over farmland, farmland, farmland. It's perplexing. 
It's a long drive of this causeway that isn't on the ground, but is uh, raised above soybeans and cotton and sugar beets, some corn. Now there is uh, a little marshy area among them and depending on what's going on beneath it, uh, but it's flat farmland and has been that drive for over a hundred years. And you drive over that and you think, this is a little weird to be driving this high above the ground that's just farmland. And the reason for that, of course, is that during the First World War, the United States embarked on what was then one of the largest infrastructure projects in the country's history. And they built these weirs, these dams, and they said, we've got to stop the flooding in coastal, the uh, central coast of California. And I know you don't care about this story, but here's where it gets just slightly interesting. The eighth governor of California, your good friend Leland Stanford, for his inaugural Stanford University, for his inauguration, he had to leave his house on the second floor, take a rowboat, row over to the state capitol for his inauguration speech, row back to his house to the second floor, which apparently then wasn't at all uncommon, that everyone had doors on the second floors because common uh, flooding was that acute. It would take over the first floor of every home in the state's capital. That's why the government said, we've got to stop the flooding. And they built these dams, mostly for the Sacramento and the American rivers, but for all of that moisture coming down from the Sierra Nevada mountains. Now imagine if you're those engineers. You're the United States government. You design it, you build it. This is uh, at the end of the First World War. And then your kids, and then your grandkids, and even some of your great-grandchildren drive over farmland. I mean, year after decade after generation just drives over farmland, and you think, this really was a good idea at one point. This was supposed to flood at one point, and it never did until this past winter. Really, and, and, and you saw what happened this winter. The Sierra Nevada mountains got 50 feet of snow this winter. In one day, Sacramento got 10 inches of rain. Now imagine a hundred years ago, you said, we have to build something that can take a coastal sea. And if you drive from San Francisco to Sacramento now, it's like you're driving over the ocean. There's more water underneath that byway than in all of Lake Fremont, which is 400 feet deep. It's 1,500 acres of flooded farms. And it's all done to preserve those cities, Davis and Riverside and Sacramento particularly. But again, imagine it's 1916. You've designed it. It's 1926, 36, 46, 76, 86, 96. And you're still driving over that causeway. And it's just dry farmland. Now it's productive farmland. You're an idiot until this winter. And this winter, you're a genius. But you've been dead for a long time. <laughs> it took that sort of foresight to see that which wasn't there. Isn't that what the Christian life is like? That you often feel like you're an idiot for the choices you make, for the decisions that you pursue, for the ways in which you go and the paths that you don't take. And then all of a sudden you realize, why am I doing this? Because everybody else thinks this is foolishness. But you're waiting for the rains. You know that the floods will come. You know, you know that to live by faith isn't just the wisest but the safest path. 
That's what I think we can learn from the anointing of David this morning. That what we get from the anointing of David is a clear picture of the Lord's beauty. And when we see the Lord's beauty for us, then we begin to find our own sense of beauty. It's dependent upon and contingent from his beauty. Let's look at the Lord's beauty in two ways this morning. How we see the Lord's beauty in his faithfulness and then how we see the Lord's beauty in his values. See my two points this morning first. How do we see the Lord's beauty in his faithfulness? I think we see it in his patience with us. Where do you see his patience in his anointing? Verse one. How long will you grave over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare. Now if you're not familiar with the Old Testament history, remember the Lord reigned and ruled over uh, Israel directly. First through the prophets like Moses and then through judges and ultimately through kings. And the first king that he anointed was Saul, this beautiful, wise, incredible king who, it appears, lost his faith and fell away and became this incredible spiritual and national disaster. And they're like, we want another king. We want another king. Now remember, when they're crying out for a king, what they're really crying out for is, I don't want the Lord's reign. And we see that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And all they say, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. And their cry for a king, what they're saying is, we want to be like the nations around us. We want to be strong and powerful. We want to conquer, militaristic. And what they're saying now, Saul's, he's a mess. And notice what the Lord does. The Lord doesn't say, ha ha, I told you. Lord doesn't say, see, they're all going to hurt you. Lord says, I'll provide another king. And notice he says, I'll provide another king for myself. Again, it's his great patience with us. What's the point of this? That we keep asking for wrong things. We keep desiring bad things. We keep hungering after lesser things. And what does the Lord do? He's patient with us. He's so tender and gracious to us. The Lord doesn't ever cluck his tongue at us. He doesn't shake his head and wag his finger and say, see, I told you, you fool, you idiot, you scoundrel. The Lord says, okay, I'll provide. I'll continue to provide. And you notice that he does that out of his own goodness, out of his own patience. There it comes. <laughs> now I need to get my big boy voice on. The Lord continues to say, I will meet your needs. I know that you need a king. And if you won't trust my kingship, I'll provide for you. That's pretty gracious. I want you to think about how many times you've said, I want to do my own thing. I want to go my own way. I want to be the queen, the king. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you over to yourself. I'll let you feel that sense of independence. And the Lord there continues to protect, provide, care for us. You see this picture, this picture that we have of him saying, okay, I'll condescend, I'll be gracious, I'll be kind. It's the Lord's patience. But it's not just his patience with us, it's his protection of us. You notice this in verse 6. Samuel said, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on the appearance or on the height of his stature. I've rejected him. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass. Neither has the Lord chosen that one. Seven more sons pass. The Lord has not chosen any of these. Now, this is interesting, and it could be, I think, interpreted moralistically, right? That we could take this as a sermon that says, oh, the Lord doesn't judge the outward, but the inward. And, and that's true as far as it goes. But notice, the prophet Samuel looks at life like we do. The prophet Samuel has the same metric that we use. This guy is good looking. Surely he must be king. It's the same thing that they did before. Now I know none of you guys realize this, but that's how they chose Saul before them. 9-2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward he was taller than any of the people. See what they had done in the choosing of Saul is they had said, what we really care about is the outward appearance. We want someone that looks kingly, that looks really, really fine. And Samuel, God's man, is about to do the same thing. Now I find that incredibly comforting. Because Samuel's just like we are. He's as materialistic and as worldly as we. And the great hope here is that the Lord doesn't give us over to our values. Notice it's the Lord who has to stop the Lord's prophet Samuel from anointing that one. What he's saying to us is... I know that you live in a world that values your resume and your CV and your rank and your retirement. I know we live in a world that values the size of your house and the education of your children. I know that. But here's what I want to do. I want to remind you of my values. I want to continue to take you back to my mores, my folkways. What the Lord's continuing to do is to say, the world in which you inhabit and the waters in which you swim, they're not safe waters. They'll make you vain and insipid. They'll make you shallow and superficial. They'll make you greedy and envious. They'll make you lustful and hungry for more. And that more won't ever be satisfied. And the Lord is saying in this, I want to protect you from you. He's saying this to God's people, to God's prophet. That we're not any different. And He's saying to all of us, what are your values? What are your personal saviors? What are those things that are making you say, that would please you, this will fill me, that will satisfy me. When I get, when I obtain, when we purchase, when we, then I'll be happy. And of course we know as well as anyone, that in those times and at that moment, not only are we not happy and a little angry, but then there's that next thing that we're longing for, hoping for, demanding, requiring, lusting after. It's never-ending, our human heart's desires. You notice how, what the Lord's showing us here, as He's saying, okay, I'm going to condescend to you, I'll give you a king. And then in the giving of the king, I have to protect you from you. We see His faithfulness, both in His patience and in His protection. I'm going to do something that uh, my congregation in Norfolk says I do far too often. Not preach, uh, Y'all didn't really get that one. Uh, I spoil movies. Uh, I do. I'm going to give you a real spoiler here. I'm going to save you five bucks here uh, from your on-demand. Uh, Amy Adams' uh, most recent movie, Arrival. I don't know how many of you saw that. It was nominated for all these awards last year. So it's a very good movie. 
It's based on a true story of, uh, of these aliens who came down all throughout the world and the United States military went to find Amy Adams who was this world-renowned philologist and they said we have to get you to interpret these symbols, these words that the aliens are trying to communicate to us. And throughout the movie as she's uh, trying to have some form of contact with these aliens and trying to interpret their symbols and signs and what they're trying to communicate to us in America and then all around the world. We keep seeing these flashbacks. And we keep seeing these flashbacks of she and her daughter. And there's these really tender moments when the daughter is born. And then there's those really hard moments of that child growing older of slamming doors and stomping feet and screaming at her mother and stomping away. And in each of those moments, anyone that's a parent or ha has been a child perhaps in their life <laughs> knows what that's like. And they feel that. And Amy Adams' character in this movie just keeps loving this daughter, just keeps holding her, hugging her, knocking at the door, pursuing her. But you feel the ache. You feel the heartache of that parent. And Amy Adams, this single mom apparently, she's like so loaded down with those memories of that guilt, of that sadness, and yet that love. And you can't help but think that's often how the Lord must view His relationship with us. That though we keep rebelling and stomping our feet and slamming the doors, He just keeps pursuing. That what we see in our relationship with the Lord is this patience this long-suffering, this faithfulness to us, Him protecting us from us, Him loving us despite us, Him doing for us far more than we could ever ask or even imagine, all for His own sake. If that's how we see, I think, the Lord's faithfulness, how do we see the beauty in His values? I think this does show us some of the Lord's clear values. Praise the Lord. The first value I think we see is how He values the unseen. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Literally, the Lord looks with respect to the eyes. Now, why do you care about this? Why should you care about the Lord valuing the unseen? I think we care about this because the Christian kingdom is an inside-out kingdom. It's an inside-out kingdom. And what that keeps us from is living lives of superficiality, of pretending or pursuing a life of empty hypocrisy. If you're not a Christian today, what that means is I know that you get frustrated by the self-righteousness, the judgmentalism, the outward preening of Christians. I get that. And that's a real problem. But what you need to hear from this text is that's not the intent of our religion. That what Christianity has always taught is that what matters is far less what we do than what we think. Far less of what our behaviors are than what our heart's motivations are. And that's troubling for Christians, isn't it? Because what Christianity says is it's not enough to do the right thing. You have to do it for the right reason, too. You have to do it for the right motivation. And that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? That's why Christianity of all the religions in the world says that our good things and our bad things both need the blood of Jesus. 
We're the only religion in the world that says that. That the best things we do aren't enough to save us. They're insufficient to rescue us. We're an inside-out religion. And as the Lord says, I value the unseen, what that does to us is ask us, are we people of integrity? Does our inward life match our outward performance, behavior? It's an invitation, I think, for us to get a whole lot more honest about that delta between how we appear and present on our social media pages and who we actually are. It's an opportunity for us as a church perhaps to say we're not quite that cool and that happy and our family isn't that together and it's not that healthy and it's not that nice and I'm not that patient and I'm certainly not that attractive. And it's an invitation for us as Christians to say, okay, here's what's true is that God loves the less lovely and the less cool and the less competent and the less righteous that he chooses those unseen things because the Lord doesn't just value the unseen, he values the unlikely. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? Well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send, get him, we won't sit down until he comes here. Poor David's name isn't even mentioned said out loud until the 13th verse of this passage. Unbelievable. See, the Lord values the unlikely because we're not just an inside-out kingdom, we're an upside-down kingdom. See, the kingdom of God doesn't just care more about the inner person, the inner woman or man. The Lord cares about the upside-downness of the kingdom, that who he chooses and those he pursues aren't at all the likely candidates that he comes for those forgotten in the sheepfold, the runt of the litter, that he comes for those that haven't led nice lives and haven't kept it together, that in fact Jesus said, I haven't come for the righteous but for the sinner, that when our religion says, who does the Lord love, who he loves are not the good and the strong, the powerful and the wealthy. In fact, he says, those are often impediments to you coming at all. But who the Lord loves are the messy and the incorrigible, the broken and the brokenhearted, those that can't get it together and can't keep it together. Remember, we are, if anything, a religion of grace. And if you miss the grace of this passage, my guess is you're probably living that American suburban meritocracy out here at the beach. You really have bought that lie that who you are and what you're becoming and who your children will be is all about what you do and how you keep it together and how hard you work. That's a graceless perspective, isn't it? It gives no place for the Lord's blessing, that he gave you the mind and the family and the context and the freedom, that he gave you the ability to keep it together and not give in to your addictions, that he's the one that has restrained you from you you see, when you live a life of grace, what your neighbors and friends start to feel is a whole lot more humility, a whole lot more generosity, and a lot less judgmentalism, a whole lot less condescension and competitiveness. Because who are we? You think I created any sense of my mind or my beauty or my abilities? You think any of those are formed from me? You see how base and graceless that could be? The Lord values the unlikely. And that's head-turning. And it is different than the world's religions. It's different than the American corporate capitalistic economy. It's why we're motivated to care for the least of these. 
Because we are the least of these. Because when we understand that the only thing that separates us from our neighbors and friends that aren't doing as well or are struggling more is God's grace. And when we can embody that value, we'll become a winsome people. People want to share with us and talk with us and tell us what's going on in their lives a little bit more. He doesn't just value the, uh, the unseen and the unlikely, frankly. He values the undeserving. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. I was ruddy and beautiful eyes, handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and left. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know what's going to happen. I mean, you talk about a spoiler. You know what this King David's going to be and become and do. And it isn't pretty. And the Lord anointed him. The Lord chose him knowing that he would become Bathsheba's paramour. He anointed him knowing that he'd have Bathsheba's husband murdered. He knew he'd lie about it. That he'd be lustful, covetous, adulterous, murderous. And knew that he would have this incredible household rebellion with Absalom, his son. He knew that even at the end of his life, out of fear and in seeking control, he would still call for a census. And in that census calling would have the whole nation judged. Like he saw David's future and it wasn't pretty. And he still chose him. And he still anointed him. And he still said, you're mine. Why? Why would he do that? Why would the Lord sign up for a train wreck? A dumpster fire at points. Because the Lord values the undeserving. Because if you forget just how undeserving we are, then you've forgotten the loveliness of Jesus. Think about where this feast is held. It's not an accident that the feast that they're celebrating is in Bethlehem. It's not an accident that the narrator wants us to realize that this anointing of Jesus looks forward to that greater anointing, that greater son of David. Because David ultimately can't save his people. David himself needed saving. You see, what this anointing points us to, of course, is that lonely hill called Golgotha where that wooden cross was erected. How does it point us to that cross, to that hill? Because David, like us, is a mess. David, like us, doesn't keep it together, doesn't hold it together, doesn't live up to what he's called to or acquire that which is demanded of him. But instead, he is one checkerboard of inconsistency. He is one record book of failure and of beauty and of terrible mistakes and of success he's like us he's an inconsistent admixture he's an alloy of beauty and shame and isn't that our lives think about the secrets you keep think about those things you don't want anybody to know those things you think about between one and three in the morning when you can't go back to sleep anybody knew this if anybody saw this what would happen to your job your marriage your future your reputation 
And the Lord sees. The Lord sees what you've done and what you will do. What you didn't do and what you won't do. And what does the Lord say about us because of that hill? Because of that cross? Because of the greater David? Of course you're undeserving. But Jesus is the one that makes you full of dessert. He makes you lovely. Jesus is the one that makes you complete and whole and free. He's the one that begins to do the work on the unseen places. He's the one that reminds you of the unlikely nature of grace. And then he's the one that comes and says, I've done it. And I've done it for you. I think that's pretty amazing news. What you realize in the movie Arrival is that after Amy Adams' character makes contact with and decodes their language and they begin to communicate what these aliens offer to her is the ability to see the future. And they offer to her the ability to inhabit her future. And in one moment you realize that all of those flashbacks they're actually pictures of her future. Because in the movie, Amy Adams hasn't ever been married. And this guy that she's doing this special assignment with will become her husband. And that girl that was her daughter, well, you see her dying of cancer. You see her choosing that man, which will then bear that daughter, which will lead to that heartache. And the question that Arrival asks us is, if you knew the future, would you choose it? If you knew the sadness, would you still embrace it? If you knew how bad it would become and difficult it would be, would you still walk that path? And she was given the choice. What if you realized that Jesus looked at your future, not just your past, and signs up for you? And chooses you out of love for you? And says to you, I'm signing up for your mess. And I'm signing up for your hypocrisy. And I'm signing up for your self-righteousness. And your graceless vision of life. And I'm signing up for you because I'm going to win you with my love. And I'm going to win you with my blood. And I'm going to win you with my resurrection and ascension. That it's a triumph of God's grace over us. A triumph of God's love for us. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray together. And so we ask, Father, that you would change our hearts from ones of just frustration and fear, of shame and of doubt. And you would remind us, Father, that you are full of grace and love toward us, all because of Jesus. That you would show us that you are good and strong, particularly when we're not. And we pray that we would see that through Jesus. Forgive us for how much we make of ourselves. For how much we make of our goodness and our abilities. And we make little of Jesus. And we need you to increase our faith by showing us his beauty. Do it for your glory, to the glory of the Son. For we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.